0: If you have your Bible with you, open to Matthew chapter 1, but we're only going to be in Matthew 1 just for a brief moment. We're actually going to spend our time this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. Matthew chapter 1. Start with me in verse 20. This is, of course, part of Matthew's account of the conception and birth of Jesus. In Matthew 1.20 we read, But when he had considered this, referring to Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. One of the most well-known prophecies about the coming of Christ is probably this prophecy about the virgin birth. Uh, We know it or we typically hear it where it finds itself in Matthew's account of the birth of Christ in Matthew chapter 1. What is probably not appreciated as much is the original context in which that promise is given. And so what we want to do this morning is recognizing that Uh, Matthew tells us that all of the miraculous events that surrounded the birth of Jesus were in some way to fulfill the word that was given through the prophet Isaiah, that the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. We want to look at how that prophecy came to being. Where, Where did that even come from? What gave rise to that prophetic statement? So if you turn from Matthew 1 to Isaiah 7, we're going to spend our time this morning in 7, 1 through 16. And what I want you to consider as we read through this passage and then, uh, and then walk through the truths and the implications that are contained in it is to consider this, that the, uh, the statement that Matthew, the quote that Matthew uses from Isaiah 7, 14 about the virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son, of course, is part of the gospel story, right? The the story, the good news of God saving His people through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. But what I want you to consider as we read through Isaiah 7 is to consider that, as we read through Isaiah 7, and we see the original or the origin story so to speak for the prophecy about the virgin birth to consider that Isaiah 7 itself preaches the gospel albeit in an old testament sort of way and with veils and shadows covering up the fulfillment of everything that's going to come in the person of Christ Isaiah 7 is preaching the gospel to us just as much as Matthew chapter 1 is in its own unique way so follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version, so if your version sounds a little bit different, that's okay. But just so you know why the words might be a little funny, here we go. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, or that is, in the northern part of Israel, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir yashu at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, or to the washer's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Ramalia. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tobiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Resin. Now within, within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered, so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you will not believe, you surely will not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, and you probably want to hear this in a very religious tone, right? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus in this passage. Help us to see not only Jesus as our Savior, but Jesus as the Savior that we need, whom you have sent for us. May your word bear its fruit in our lives according to your will and purpose. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So this sign of God's salvation that's given in the statement about the virgin birth or about this young woman who's going to conceive and bear a child. We want to do, we're gonna break this passage up. It's going to be somewhat lopsided in terms of the, the number of verses under one point and the number of verses in the other. But we're gonna take it in two parts. Number one, we're going to consider in the opening two verses the sinful people who are suffering for their sins. And then number two, in verses 3 through 16, we want to see the gracious God who saves sinful people. So, number one, sinful people suffering the penalty of their sin. If you read here, the, the, what you have in Isaiah 7 goes something like this. It, because of the historical context, it can be a little, uh, a little odd or even off-putting. Um, we don't really know how to make heads or tails of it at first glance, but let me, in just a, a very short, simple sort of way, let me just explain it to you this way, if, uh, if you are curious or needing to know, because this will help you with the passage. Uh, the nation of Israel has been split, divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The southern kingdom of Judah contains Jerusalem, and has all of the descendants of David ruling and reigning on the throne. So the, the heart of God's promises to his people are being carried primarily by the southern kingdom of Judah. And in the promises to David and the assurance that David would have an heir always ruling and reigning on the throne, Jerusalem must remain intact. Now, just north of Judah, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, and just north of the kingdom of Israel, you have the kingdom of Aram, A-R-A-M, or some of your Bibles may say Syria. So what's happened in Isaiah 7 is that the king of Aram and the king of Israel have decided that they're going to form an alliance to come south into Judah to conquer Jerusalem, to depose Ahaz as king, and to install a puppet king in Jerusalem, who will more or less do their bidding. So it's a, it's a power play. And if we have more time, we could talk about some of the broader politics that are involved, but we won't get into that right now. All right. So one of the things that happens here is that as you go back into the historical books of the Old Testament, you find that when Ahaz was ruling and reigning, this is not the first threat that Ahaz faced. As a matter of fact, individually, Ahaz has faced off with both the king of Aram and the king of Israel and has lost to each one of them in significant ways separately so that now that word is coming that the two of these kings whom he's already lost to are now joining forces, Ahaz feels like the writing is on the wall, his days are numbered, and he's about to see the end of his rule and, of course, the end of his life. So because of that, Ahaz and his administration and all the people who live in Jerusalem and the surrounding vicinity are fearful because of the strength of their enemy who comes to oppose them and to destroy them. Now, if all that we had was Isaiah 7 to read, and particularly those first two verses, you might be somewhat sympathetic for Ahaz because here's this poor guy trying to mind his business, and these two mean kings to the north of him decide that they're going to come and kill him and take possession of his kingdom. But that's not really the way to think about what's going on here. So what you need to do is hold your place here in Isaiah 7, and turn back to 2 Chronicles, chapter 28. 2 Chronicles, chapter 28. tell by the flipping of pages that 2 Chronicles is not a well-worn part of your Bible. Am I right? All right, you can join the club, right? 2 Chronicles 28. Start with me at verse 1. We're going to read, say, the first uh, five verses or six verses. 2 Chronicles 28. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do right in the sight of the Lord as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals. Moreover, he burned incense in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, "...and burned his sons in fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out before the sons of Israel." So not only is he involved in idolatrous worship, turning from the Lord, his idolatrous worship includes child sacrifice, offering up his own children on a burning altar. Verse 4, "...he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills and under every green tree." Therefore, therefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Aram, and they defeated him and carried away from him a great number of captives and brought them to Damascus. And he was also delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who inflicted him with heavy casualties. For Pekah, the son of Ramallah, slew in Judah 120,000 in one day, all valiant men, because they had forsaken the Lord God of their fathers. That's the background that you need to have when you read Isaiah 7, 1 and 2. The point being this, that Ahaz is not a hapless victim in this. Ahaz is suffering the consequences of his sin and rebellion against God. People, listen to me. I want to be very careful when I say this, so please hear, hear me all the way through here because I don't want to be misinterpreted or misunderstood. All right? Let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this. There is such a thing as suffering unjustly, right? That misery, suffering, sorrow, grief comes upon us not because of anything that we have done to, to warrant that. There is what we would call innocent suffering. But the scriptures make it clear over and over and over again that first and foremost, our primary problem is not our weakness or our, the difficulties of this life, but our first and foremost problem is that we are sinners in rebellion against our God and King. Husbands and wives your main problem is not your spouse it's you kids your main problem is not your annoying brother or sister it's you Co-workers, your main problem is not the annoying person that sits next to you in the cubicle at work. Your main problem is you. Ultimately, all that we experience in life, even the sorrow and misery, ultimately gets traced back to our sin and rebellion that started in the garden. And everything flows downstream from that So that all of the other misery, all of the sadness, all of the frustration, all of the danger, all of the threats that we encounter ultimately are the result of our sin. Through one man, Paul writes, sin entered into the world and death through sin because all have sinned. And notice as you, as you consider the, the backdrop in 2 Chronicles 28, as you see that, that Ahaz is anything but an innocent victim in all of this, that one of the things that also needs to be fit into the, into the dynamic or the picture is that the, the attacks from the outside that are coming against Ahaz and the southern kingdom are all things that the Lord had warned his people about in writing, in his word. In Deuteronomy, the Lord makes it very clear, when you enter into the land and when you settle in, if you walk in obedience with me, you will be safe and secure. But the minute that you begin to turn your back on me and you begin to pursue other gods or other forms or means of security, you're going to be exposed. You're not going to enjoy the protection of my fellowship and outside forces will come in to threaten you and to harm you. The only way that you can be saved is by coming to me. The fact that Ahaz has suffered under numerous threats and defeats and now faces yet another threat, this one seemingly to end his life, is all owing and due to the fact that Ahaz has rebelled against God. This is our plight, as as Isaiah says elsewhere, that all we like sheep have gone astray. Paul will say later in Romans that there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. Our paths are the way of misery and destruction, and there is no fear of God in our eyes. So what will the Lord do with Ahaz and with the people? What should He do with them? Here again is a good reason that God is not like us. If I were God, looking at Ahaz, knowing that this is not the first trouble that he's run into because of his sin and rebellion, it would be long past time for me to say, have it your way, Ahaz. Have it your way, Judah. We're done. And you leave them to lay in the bed that they made. What does God do? God shows himself to be abundantly kind and gracious to undeserving people. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son share Yashuv at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field, and say to him, and then you have the message, don't be afraid, Ahaz. These guys are not going to be able to touch you. I'll take care of it. And, and the end in, what is it, verse 9, the very last line of verse 9, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Phrase positively, if you just simply believe, you'll be safe. What is Ahaz doing when God's word comes to him through Isaiah? Well, he's told to go... Isaiah is told to go find Ahaz out by the conduit of the upper pool. What Ahaz is doing, he's inspecting his water supply, getting ready for the siege that's going to come on Jerusalem. Is Ahaz turning his attention to the Lord? Is Ahaz calling out for salvation and deliverance? Far from it. Even now, when he is facing his imminent destruction, Ahaz is still bent and determined to do things his way. He'll save himself. He'll figure it out. He'll check his resources. He'll see what materials he has. And he'll fight his way out of this. He'll live to see another day. And one of the ways that you see God's grace and mercy given to Ahaz is that God sends his word to Ahaz when Ahaz is not even listening or looking for it. Do you notice that? Ahaz has not called out to the Lord. Isaiah is not being sent to Ahaz in response to any prayer that Ahaz has offered. This is God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, sending his word of assurance and comfort, the promise of deliverance and salvation, to a man who is utterly unworthy of it. Do you see yourself at all in the person of Ahaz? You ought to. How many times does God speak to us when our minds are far from him, when our hearts are so easily distracted, when we're set and determined to do things our own way, to pursue our own agenda, our own desires, and yet God in His mercy does the gracious thing by speaking to His people to set them on the right path. You realize that every time that you open your Bible to read, God is being gracious and merciful to you. Every single time. Every time that you gather with your brothers and sisters to have God's word preached, to hear God's word prayed, to hear God's word sung, to share the word of God with each other in words of encouragement or correction back and forth with one another in our interpersonal relationships, every time that that happens, that is God being good and gracious and merciful to you. Trying to grab your attention to set your focus, set your mind on the things above so that you will not chase after the things of the world, so that you will not try to find your security or your salvation in things that offer no hope. Further, it's not simply that God comes and speaks to Ahaz when Ahaz is not even looking to be spoken to. But notice that the word that the Lord gives to Ahaz is ultimately one of salvation. Ahaz is in outright rebellion against his God and against his king. And the word that comes to him from Isaiah, beginning in verse 3 and following, is the promise or is the assurance that even now God is still willing to save sinful, rebellious people. Even though he hasn't even asked to be saved, that's how good and gracious God is. Can I ask again, are you thankful? Do you realize that God's grace and mercy in your life fits this same pattern for us? Any of us who have walked with the Lord for any period of time can look back on our lives or can look at our life today and say if the only protection, if the only salvation and deliverance that I received from the Lord was dependent upon how much I cried out to God, how much I deserved it, where would I be? The Lord is slow to anger overflowing in kindness and mercy. So the word to Ahaz is, in spite of your sin, in spite of your rebellion, in spite of the fact that all of this that you're encountering right now is the due penalty for your sin. Even now, the Lord is willing to save. The Lord will save. Ahaz, all you need to do is rest in my word of promise, in my assurance that I am able to save and deliver. You don't have to do anything. You can't do anything. Let me be your salvation, even now, even today. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ is not your Lord and Savior, which is ultimately what all of this is pointing to or driving to, the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. Let me make an appeal to you that if you have lived a significant part, even a majority of your life, in defiance of God, rejecting Him, knowing what He has spoken in His Word, And all of that you have turned a deaf ear to, and you have lived in disobedience and rebellion to that up to this very point. Today, the Word of God comes to you saying that even now, God will take you. God will save you. If you are willing to turn from your sin and your ways and rest in His salvation, it is not too late you are not too far gone you are not so lost or so distant that the Lord cannot reach you with his arm of salvation Christians if you're here and you're wallowing in willful knowing sin that you've been harboring you've been feeling the weight of guilt and conviction over these little particular sins that you harbor and you hold because you consider them to be enjoyable or precious or valuable. Know today that even now you can confess your sin and be put back into right fellowship with your God and with your Savior. So in spite of Ahaz, in spite of his sin, in spite of his disobedience, in spite of his waywardness and rebellion, in spite of the fact that he's not looking for God to save him, God sovereignly steps in to offer salvation to Ahaz and offers it for the low, low price of simple faith. Look at verse 10. It would be enough if God had extended His grace through His Word up to verse 9. But here we have grace upon grace, starting in verse 10. Then the Lord spoke, notice, again to Ahaz he increased the word that he gave to Ahaz. He didn't speak to him once, he spoke to him twice. And in the second speaking, in the additional word that the Lord is giving to Ahaz, we read this. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as shale or high as heaven. Why is is the Lord coming and telling Ahaz to ask for a sign? What, what What are the purpose... What are the purposes? What is the purpose? What is the purpose of signs in Scripture? Ultimately, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, signs are to signify some truth to which you're to direct your mind and your faith. So, the signs that Christ performs in the Gospels are to signify something about who He is and what He has come to do so that people, when they see it, will recognize it and will put their trust in Christ. A sign is an assurance that what God has said, He will do. So not only does God come a second time, to speak to Ahaz again, he comes to him and he says, Ahaz, because I know that you have very little to nonexistent faith, which is evident in the way that you've lived your life, I'm giving you the added bonus of asking me to do a miracle. You can ask for whatever you want, and I'll do it, so that you'll know that you can trust my promise that I will not allow you to be destroyed by these two kings. And he basically hands over to Ahaz a blank check and says, you write whatever you want and I'll do it. What would you give to be in Ahaz's spot? Ask anything. And I'll do it just to prove to you that you can trust me. Because I know that you're weak, because I know that your faith is faulty and frail, let me give you a sign to strengthen you. And what does Ahaz say? No thanks. Now, understand, when Ahaz responds by saying no thanks in verse 12... He does it in a very religious, spiritual way. Ahaz says in verse 12, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That last part there, nor will I test the Lord, that's drawing from the Old Testament command that you shall not test the Lord your God. So see, Ahaz does know enough of God's Word to use it to his twisted sort of way when he wants to. He just doesn't love God's word enough, or God himself, to actually do what God has told him to do in his word. But using religious language, he sort of couches this and saying, no, no thanks, I, I'm, I don't need to do that, I don't, I don't want to test God, I don't want to put him out. Here is the damnable truth about Ahaz. The problem with Ahaz is not so much, well, it is not only, that's a better way to say it, it is not only... That Ahaz does not believe, but that he doesn't want to believe. How else do you explain the Lord offering to do a miracle sign so that Ahaz can believe and Ahaz turning it down? Ahaz simply does not want to believe. His mind is already made up. He knows the path that he's going to take. And so here again is the stark contrast between the sin and the rebellion of Ahaz, of which we can all identify, and the grace and mercy of God running alongside of Ahaz, suffering because of his rebellion, under threat of certain death and destruction. Not turning to the Lord, not asking for salvation and deliverance. The Lord, in his sovereignty, in his initiative, approaches Ahaz to say, turn to me that you will find life. Turn to me that you will be saved. Ask of me, and I will give you the confidence that you need. And Ahaz doesn't want any of it. God has been more than gracious to give Ahaz his word, to speak to him, and Ahaz will not take it. And just when you think that God cannot become any more gracious to Ahaz or to his sinful people, he shocks us and surprises us one more time. Verse 13, then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. No, I don't want to ask for a sign because I really, frankly, don't want to believe. And so what is God's response? All right, let me know how it works out. No. God says, fine, Ahaz, you don't want to ask for a sign? I'll give one anyway. And the sign that he gives in the birth of this mysterious child, whoever he is, is nothing less than the assurance, rooted in the name, Emmanuel, that God is with us. This does not make any sense. Rejected three, four times in this passage alone, and God is saying, let me give you a sign of your salvation and security, and the sign is, God is with us. Why would He be? after all of this? Why would God be with you? Why would he be with me? Why would he be with us after all of this? It's not because of our faith our faith is too weak it's not because of our obedience our obedience is too shallow it's not because of our consciences they oftentimes are far too dull and God help us before he even came in to regenerate our hearts it certainly was not because of our hearts because they were dead But in spite of sin and rebellion, God will save a people for himself. And if you are seated here in this room today knowing that your sins have been forgiven by Jesus Christ, you are living proof of that truth, that God will save a people for himself and that no amount of sin no amount of doubt, no amount of struggle, will ever undo what God has purposed to do. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, right? Because if you go through Isaiah chapter seven and you say, well, isn't that nice? that God is going to remain with His people even though they don't really want God to stick around. Even though they'll have nothing to do with Him, God will still continue to work for them, to deliver them, to save them. Right, but then throughout the history of God's people, it's always one crisis after another. Always one crisis after another because there is always more sin and more disobedience leading to more problems and more complications. How is the cycle ever going to end? It ends in the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. It ends in Matthew 1, when the virgin conceives and gives birth to a child who is literally Emmanuel, God with us, who, listen, is not only with us in our weakness and in our grief, but in some profound, mysterious way on the cross is with us in our sin. He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. The sign of God's goodness to you and me, the sign of God's assurance that He will never leave us or forsake us is in the person of His own Son, Jesus Christ, whom He offered up as a sacrifice for us all. What can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Having already given us his son, will he not also with him freely give us all things? And he has poured out the spirit of adoption in our hearts that cries out, Abba, Father, so that we can know that we are no longer slaves to sin, so that we know that we are no longer in fear of death and judgment, but that we have been reconciled to our Father through the work of our older brother, Jesus Christ, and that we have been identified with Him. And because we have been united with Christ and have been sealed by His Spirit, God will always remain with us and for us and in us, until we finally stand before Him face to face. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. That at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, entering into this world in human flesh to be made like one of us so that we could be made like Him. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, because we are gathered in your name, we ask that you would continue to make your presence known, that by your strength, you would assist us, that you would free us from our sin and from our doubt. Help us to know the joy of our salvation. Help us to know that we are safe and secure because of the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ that we are safe and secure in the sealing power of your Holy Spirit, who will see to it that we are brought safely to the end of our journey. We praise you, Father, for the gift of your Son, for the riches of your grace and mercy in our salvation through Jesus Christ. And we praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, who assures us that we belong to you and we no longer need to fear death. Give us that assurance and that confidence as we live in your presence all the days of our lives. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen.